Hello and welcome to another episode of the Katha Podcast. So this is a special one. This is a bonus episode in a way. And uh, I am not alone today. I am joined by three of my friends, classmates, amazing young leaders who are uh, forging ahead and creating a new brand of ethical leadership in Denver, Colorado. We are in a capstone class together at the University of Denver. And we are going to be talking about ethical leadership and how that manifests in the real world. We are going to be tackling stories, some kadha about ethical leadership, and we're going to be really delving into how that looks like in the real world. And we're mostly going to be working with an interview that we had to do for our capstone class. So we interviewed a community leader, and uh, which gave us a lot of insight that we thought would be really fun to talk about. So without further ado, welcome to this special, special episode of the Katha Podcast. Okay, welcome back. Uh, I'm going to let my friends introduce themselves. Uh, you want to go first? Yeah. Hi, I am Claire Nicholson, and like Sudha mentioned, uh, we're all together here. Hello, I'm Angie Lucios. I'm Joey Hector. And I, you know, Sudev. Same old, same old. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's get uh, started. Well, we are talking about ethical leadership today, and it's a very complex topic, uh, mm-hmm. for sure, because there is no easy answer when it comes to ethics. There is no easy answer when it comes to leadership. Going out there and trying to do stuff and trying to make a change is hard. And sometimes we are faced with difficult decisions. Uh, and dilemmas. And how do we tackle that is always the tough question, isn't it? Yes, it is. And one of the things we've been talking about heavily throughout this quarter has been the four ethical lenses defined by Catherine Baird um, for ethical leadership. You want to give a little overview of what those lenses are? Yeah, yeah. So the four lenses include the rights and responsibilities lens, which is aligned with deontology the results lens, which is aligned with utilitarianism, the relationship lens, which is aligned with justice theory, and the reputation lens, which is aligned with virtue theory. For some of our listeners who might not know what the, what those words mean, could one of you explain what these like different theories are? Um, sure. I can start with... Um, so let's start with justice theory um, for the reputation lens. Um, a good example of justice theory would be um, John Rawls and his thought experiment, uh, The Veil of Ignorance. So basically, Rawls' idea was that you should imagine yourself in a position where there is no society and where you don't know what position you will one day be in in a society. How would you build the world from that position? The conclusion that Rawls comes to is that everyone would... Create a world that works best for themselves, right? Yeah, Um, that works best for everyone because you don't know where you're going to be. So you'd want society to be as equitable and equal as possible so that if you're at the bottom, you're still treated fairly. It's actually very interesting for me that how our self-interest to be treated well translates into altruism from that in this thought thought experiment. Mm -hmm. Just because we don't know where we are going to end up we want everyone to be treated well, just so we can also yeah. be treated well. And, and that was the, that's the point of the thought experiment, right. to show how this almost selfish desire is altruistic. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But it also kind of contrasts with uh, how deontology looks at the world, doesn't it? 
Yeah. Yeah. So deontology is basically the idea that your actions and the way that they are aligned with your ethical position are that... Hmm, I'm not being able to define this well. Someone else do it. <laughs> yeah, so deontology is a Kantian theory of like n- distinguishing what is morally good to yourself and what is morally bad and only acting in, according, in accordance to what you think is good, which is a really interesting contrast to the, my, the relationship that lens or any of the other lenses in the sense that it has like a pre- preconception of how you're going to act before you act. So kind of a black and white view of what's right and what's wrong. Yes. Under, yeah, under the rights and responsibilities lens, there are a number of set rules that must be universalizable. So the whole idea is that if, if one person does something that is considered unethical and another person does that, eventually, if enough people do that, it will begin to deteriorate the fabric of society. So, for example, lying or cheating because truth and integrity would cease to mean anything. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have a tough time. I do think there are some things that are, you know, black and white, good or bad. But I also have a very tough time kind of like adhering to this Kantian rigidity. That's also my problem with, uh, with uh, virtue theory. Um, that's... Um, I, I am not going to do a good job explaining what virtue theory is. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's that there are some like inherent virtues to humanity, right? Something like that? You can, yeah. You can give it a shot if you'd like. Yeah. Um, basically, virtue theory is the idea that rather than being directly judged by your actions, you're judged by your character. Your morality is based on your character and what values you're fo- you follow. It's important. It's a distinguish between... Like a distinction between the actual emotions that you feel and how you act on them. Mm-hmm. So, so intent over impact, if that makes sense? Yes, 100%. It's how you, how you conduct yourself, not necessarily the specific actions that you take. Like donating money isn't as go- considered as good because it's an act rather than a... Virtue. Rather than a virtue, yeah. yeah. It's considered... Donating money would be considered under the virtue of generosity rather than... That as just a good act. Yes. Yes, yes, right. yes. And that would be like directly opposite uh, utilitarianism. Yes, I can talk about this one. So the results lens is based on consequentialism, which is having choices is critical. Why do we love this so much? Well, if you look back at the trolley experiment by, developed by philosopher Philippa Foote in the 1960s and was later adopted by Judith Darvis Thompson in the ni- in 1985, consequentialism and utilitarianism are very much focused on the outcomes, meaning what can do the most good, what mm-hmm. actions will mm-hmm. result in the greatest good for the largest amount of people. That doesn't necessarily have to do with like having to like show virtuous character or demonstrating ethical excellence. It has more to do with like the outcome of the situation, like less so with your actions, but more so with the outcome of said actions. Mm-hmm. So it's so it's the end rather than the means. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's almost, it's the exact opposite of the of the uh, uh, relate. I'm um, sorry, reputation and virtue lens. 
it's rather than your intent being all that matters, it's your impact. Is your impact. impact. Yeah. Not even what you do, what happens because of it. Yeah, so you could be doing something terrible, but if a lot of people are helped and if it creates net good, then the action itself is good. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, the it's, ends justify the means. Yeah. It's obviously an extreme, that, but uh, the idea is that you, use, you would use all four of these lenses when making a decision so that they temper each other. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys remember this story. We talked about it in class a little bit. Uh, how it's an extension of the trolley problem in a way that you're a heart surgeon and uh, or you're some surgeon and you have five individuals uh, who would die if they didn't get an organ trans- mm-hmm. transplant and you have one person who's in there because they have a chronic illness which is going to kill them in a, in a few years. Not right now. In a, They might be able to live a very fulfilling life for the next five, ten years. But they will die eventually. But if you transplant their organs right now, you can save the life of the five other people. But it will kill that one person. And as the doctor, you're the one who's going to be actually actively mm-hmm. doing it in like contrast to trolley problem where you're a passive actor. And yeah. <laughs> um, like imagine they're like same socioeconomic status, yeah. like same, like there is no like racial or like ethnic or linguistic, gender, sexual um, discrimination, like ethical mm-hmm. barriers there. They're, and in that, in, in that like vacuum, would it be ethical to like kill that one person to save those five people, mm-hmm. all six people being innocent? And <laughs> so you actively do it yourself. Yeah. Rather than just have, oh, someone's going to die. Any, like the, tra- the train is coming and I can switch it or I can do nothing. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but this is where the choices aspect is critical. It's that choice of have, being willing to act or acting or the choice of not acting. It's still very much mm-hmm. within this lens. Like choices are so important. Right. And um, I know this is kind of a tangent, but what do you guys think is ethical in that situation? Like, do you think it should be, it would ever be justified to do it or or not? I think that this is from this perspective, as a doctor, you have the choice of treating these patients or not treating these patients, mm-hmm. obviously, with like the willing, like with the ability to make that decision or not. Um, yeah, I, does anyone <laughs> else have to say anything to say about that? Well... Um, I, I necessarily want to look at the situation a little bit more from the rights and responsibilities lens where, you know, doctors do make a vow to do no harm Mm. that like, that is an oath that you take when you get your licensure. So, Mm -hmm. so because of that, I do have to say like, no, Mm -hmm. it's, Mm -hmm. it's not okay to kill somebody even if it means saving the lives of five others Uh, yeah but it's you know it's a slippery slope and that's what Mm -hmm. ethics are I wonder what John Rawls would say uh, John Rawls (laughs) Um, he would probably ask about demographics um, yeah (laughs) actually that's that's probably the most I was gonna uh, take it from the reputation lens for virtues and say Mm -hmm. well I would say that almost certainly it wouldn't be acceptable ethically because doing harm your intent is to do harm to this person, even if it is to help other people. At the end of the day, you're hurting someone else to help others, and there's more people affected by that than just the people you're saving. Obviously, the people you're saving also has more of an impact, but right. the person whose own you're taking might have a family, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. it's and mm-hmm. 
it's worth noting that you would be doing this without their consent. It's your choice. You're doing it, right? right? right. It's just not really acceptable. From Rawls' perspective, though, um, <laughs> you really can't use people as means to an end, essentially, with this. Yeah, yeah. Lens. Which is why it's like doesn't necessarily like the results lens is very much focused on like you as an individual actor versus where the relationship and reputation lens are very much focused on like external actors and mm. like the people the around people you around you rather than just yourself. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this other model in class too, right? I think it was uh, Kidder's model. Yes, this twelve-step who... decision-making model. Yeah, um, and. Um, there is uh, something that was interesting that we talked about in class, the right versus right decision, that uh, yes. we might have two things that we think are right in like two different ways. Like in, uh, for one decision, the intent is right, er, and another decision, the impact is right, er. And uh, a lot of the time, like ethical decision making uh, is about treading that line between right versus right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not it's not just the right versus wrong because right versus wrong decisions usually end up being some of the more instinctive ones mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because you know you do, you don't want to do the wrong thing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And our the the community leader that we interviewed also talks a little bit about uh, the right versus right conflict um, in when she talks about like ethical challenges that she's faced. Right. Yeah. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. We should introduce our uh, community leader. Uh, Angie, do you want to do that? Yes. Our interview today was with Marguerite Meek, who is the executive director of the Colorado Forum nonprofit called From Nest to Wings. From Nest to Wings is, a, as I said, a nonprofit organization that caters to high school age students, kind of helping them have the resources that they need for their post-graduation plans and to get to graduation, in fact. And she does a lot of work with community outreach and videography, just kind of giving a breakdown of the questions that they may have that just are difficult to answer Mm -hmm. or to access, depending on where you're from. So, yes, this is to have, like, a post-graduation sort of plan. Right. Um, Yeah, I actually have a clip uh, pulled up here of um, Margaret introducing herself. So I'm going to play that so we can hear from Margaret about uh, who she is and what she does. She says some interesting things about the ethics of her life and her decisions as well. Uh, So, yeah. Okay, the background on me. I grew up in Kansas and I was a product of a military family. My father was in the service. He passed when I was six. So My mother raised us until I was 14 when she remarried. She married my elementary school principal, which was just fun. And I would just like to state, for the record, the Brady Bunch lied. It's not that easy. (laughs) Um, I went to college at Kansas State University, majored in history and political science, but I was more intrigued by the whole concept of higher education. So then I went to Bowling Green State University in Ohio and earned a master's in college student personnel, which is the study of how college students think, act, and react in different environments. Then I went on to Western Illinois University, where I was an assistant director of student activities. From there, I went to the Ohio State University, where I did much the same job, but before I was done, ended up being director of student activities because our director of student activities had lost $500,000 somewhere in the process, so I got to try and find that. Found all but 46000 
Um, then I went to the University of Kansas, much the same thing there, director in student organizations and activities. And then I got married and my husband is military and he was getting an assignment to go to Germany. So we went there thinking we'd be there for three years. We ended up being there for five years and came back with two kids. Uh, during that time there, I worked in their education department. When I got back, we ended up in Kansas again at Fort Leavenworth. We were there for four years. And um, during that time, I worked on a program called the Army Family Team Building Program, which was a program that helped military spouses. And so I helped put together classes at the national level. Then we went to Iowa State, spent three years there. By then I had four kids. Then we went to Colorado, where my husband became the ROTC commander and have loved being in Colorado. We will never leave. But since then, I have been working with From Nest to Wings. It started out as a program within a organization I'm a, I'm a member of, which is called the uh, PEO. And it's a women's organization that raises money and supports women in education. It fit really naturally to develop this kind of program from there. But when we started realizing that men were having as much trouble getting into college, dealing with the transition, working with all of that, we wanted to expand. And so we withdrew from that organization, created our own 501c3 and now I'm executive director from Nest to Wings. And, and so I'm used to following rules because I'm a military brat. I am also willing to make things happen for people because I'm in education. So it's, it's, I'm a mess. I mean, uh, aside from her spot on pop culture references, <laughs> <laughs> like that, that last, the, the thing that she mentioned very last, and you engaged with uh, her on that, Claire, uh, yes. the, the messy type between being an army brat and following rules, but also wanting to make, uh, you know, make things happen for other people. Like, I think that's an interesting concept. Yeah, and I, I was gonna say, as, as Margaret was saying this, what popped up for me was that this was a very obvious conflict between, for example, you know, the rights and responsibilities lens, where there are set rules that you have to follow as part of society, and the results lens where you really are just trying to make things happen for people. Um, I don't know if anyone else wanted to comment on that, but I thought that was a really interesting perspective to get. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I completely agree. There's also a third lens that factors into what she talks about. Later on, she talks about how the way that she um, deals with the people she helps right. um, through helps get into college and how she treats people who have a lot of money quite differently and deals with oh, them and talks yeah. to them quite differently from how she helps people who need to finance college and need mm -hmm. to take out loans and things like that. And I think that that also shows a third lens that might be in conflict here of the um, justice lens because right. at the end of the day, it's about being equitable and making sure that everyone has a fair shot at things. Yeah, I think she mentions uh, the difference between trust fund babies and their like students who need to work in yeah. order to put them themselves through college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can pull up the part where she talks about that. It's so hard to know where equity falls that all I can do is make sure I understand that my job is to give everybody as strong an opportunity as they can have based on where they are when they step into it. So especially when we talk about financing college, which is a huge discussion these days, I'm not going to talk to the trust fund babies in the same way that I'm going to talk to the family whose student is having to work um, to get them through COVID. 
That was one of the main reasons why males dropped out of the college population. And by college, we always mean community college, trade school, certificates, apprenticeships, four-year college, any, any kind of education after high school. They were dropping out because they had to go help support their family. So then our job is to say, okay, that is true. And we're glad you were able to do that. But what's your plan now? How can we help get you to your educational plan now? So a lot of it is just trying to meet the person where they are. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that is uh, that is definitely interesting. I mean, I think that fits really well with, uh, you know, creating a world that works for everyone, like a Rawlsian thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John Rawls, in his uh, Veil of Ignorance and definition of the original position, his his whole thing was basically make sure that the people who are the worst off in society are still getting resources and are still Mm -hmm. like being treated well. Um, And so, yeah, Margaret really does try to pay attention to that kind of social differentiation. I do want to point out a bit of a distinction between Rawls' thought experiment and how Rawls suggest that it be applied to the world. Right. Because it's worth noting that the veil of, the, of ignorance and the original position are both thought experiments, just mm-hmm. that. They're not really grounded in reality. It's an idea, something, a perspective that you can take. Ah, yeah. But it's not something that exists. Mm-hmm. And as such, a common criticism of it becomes that it's about equality, not equity, because from a world with no society in it, there would be no prior inequalities. inequalities. Right. Yeah. Right. So Rawls proposes that in order to get to that, first we need to get to the point where there are no equalities before we can start just directly applying the thought experiment to real life. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. indeed. Yeah, and that just leads us to a question that we asked Margaret during the interview, which is, what do you think are necessary requirements or qualities to manifest good and ethical leadership in an organization within a society as a whole? Mm. Oh, yeah. She, her answer was simply listening. Right. Right. She, she really emphasized listening not only to the people that she works with most closely, but to the people who, you know, Nest Wings is trying to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Within that, the relationship lens does place a really heavy emphasis on listening and giving voices to those who have the least agency to begin mm. with. Mm. I don't know if anyone else wants to. I mean, she also talks about how important she finds it to be able to surround herself with people who will play devil's advocate with her and her ideas. Right. How she finds volunteers from the community to just listen to her ideas and give her feedback and how she mentions that she loves the fact that there are people on the board of directors of her organization who will always play devil's advocate. Even if it's not necessarily what they personally believe, they want to make sure that all the perspectives are heard. Right. And I think that one of the really interesting things that she talked about was how important it was for her to have a whistleblower policy Uh, in her nonprofit, how setting up a rules so that this conversation and these conversations and individuals who disagree have a safe space to do so and point out the blind spots that might be missed in their organization. Yeah. I mean, organizational ethics are something that we've been discussing really heavily in class recently. And 
the way that Margaret spoke about a lot of the rules and framework that they already have for ethical leadership, organizational ethics are so key in recognizing the places where organizations can fall short of ethical behavior without even realizing it. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that, you know, Nest Wings does have a non-discrimination statement, um, whistleblower policy, all of that stuff, that is so important in basically making sure that in spite of our own you know, we, we try to we try to not be biased. We try our best, but that's not always going to work. So having those protections in place already to address that when it pops up, that that's so incredibly important. Mm -hmm. But again, I um, I remember we talked about this in class as well, and we and we've talked about this outside class also uh, about like racism and. Uh, discrimination, just economic, racial, uh, gendered, sexual orientation, nationality, like all kinds of discrimination that are like default is to be afraid of the other. And I think it's Dr. Abraham Kendi who talks about it in uh, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best things I've ever read or heard. <laughs> so like Dr. Kendi talks about this a lot with, um, you know, how our default position is to be afraid of the other, is to, you know, is, is to like favor being kind of unethical to the other, but it's an active conscious decision that we take. Yeah, um, this actually brings in the the concept from the book Blind Spots that we've been reading. Um, ordinary prejudice. Yeah. Ordinary prejudice is is called ordinary because it's it's the idea that everyone, regardless of where we come from, regardless of what our path in life is, will have some kind of implicit biases. And it's it's not so much about trying to pretend they don't exist. It's about addressing why we have them and trying to move forward from them. Absolutely. And it's kind of that point that Margaret made about that hard decision that she had to make with regards to the comments yes. in her videos and some yeah. of the media that Nestor Wings puts out, whether or not it engages in a productive conversation, whether like that point that's disagreeing with what she said is leading to a greater discussion and she can suck it up or mm -hmm. actually continue mm -hmm. to display that comment. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, sucking up, like, you know, <laughs> uh, being a brown person in America, suck it up is like something I've heard a lot. So it's, it's always, you know, treading the line between like, do you want to suck up? Like, what is the ethical? And it's, it's the, that's the tough decision. Like, Margaret talks about this too. And like, Dr. Kendi talks about this when he says, like, being anti-racist is a conscious choice. It's yes. a, like, yes. you consider so many outcomes and you, you, you like, wake up and decide to, like, make those hard choices, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, that goes back to the blind spots theory that we have been discussing with Dr. Busnerman and uh, Tim Brunzel because there's a clear distinction of how, what we want to do. Yes, she doesn't want to have those comments disagreeing with them and doing that, but you, she knows that she should keep them there if it's leading to a greater discussion and something more informed and just coming to terms with that, which is why her whole notion of listening was so important. Actually, let's just listen to her talk about it. Yes. I'm gonna, <laughs> yes. I'm gonna pull up that little bit, so. Yeah. 
generally through discussion, letting everybody have their say, and then we kind of talk it through, and then it ends up being more of a corporate moral authority kind of decision. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not... Most of the time, we do have some volunteers who like to play devil's advocate, and I appreciate that. And so they aren't as emotionally tied to the outcome as they are being able to present another side. So it hasn't, at this point, they have been willing to listen and to move on. Um, So it's just more trying to get as many minds into the discussion as we can, seeing where there's consensus, where there isn't, we do a reevaluation, and then we kind of look at each other and go, okay, most of us believe this. So let's go with that. Mm -hmm. I'm really lucky in that our organization has taken some steps to provide an ethical framework. So we have the non-discrimination statement. We have the board roles and responsibilities, conflict of interest, all those wonderful policies, because that does give you the framework from which to act. Um, luckily, within the fiduciary reins, we have written policies. I've got two books back here behind me that are that thick that talk about our accounting policies and what we can do, uh, how we manage all of our money. We have a whistleblower policy, all of that. So that helps to provide a framework. Actually, I find it very interesting towards the very end when she starts talking about uh, corporate moral authority. And um, Nest Wings is a nonprofit. They're doing some really great work. But just the idea of having corporate entities and like incorporated like board of directors and like mm-hmm. corporate uh, trust trustee boards being seen as moral authority does not sit right with me. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a, it is an essential byproduct of and a necessary evil of uh, capitalism that we live through. But I think it, 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 it kind of makes ethics in in, a malleable in a way like we saw with what happened with Enron and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and uh, it it makes it in a way where it it loses the human aspect of it loses the I mean as Rawls tells us it's about protecting the most vulnerable right Mm -hmm. I mean that's how I look at it it's about protecting the most vulnerable the the black indigenous working class uh, folks women LGBTQ folks the people who do not have access to like systemic uh, scaffolding or protections within the hyper capitalist world that we live in maybe it's just my (laughs) and and, and when you're not in when you're not in a non-profit like Nesta Wings just exactly like you said right capitalism is what rules your moral ethics yeah when you're not in a non-profit that's built around helping people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you, going back to like the blind spots theory, there is a quote from there that says, paying attention to what isn't talked about within an organization Mm. also provides valuable information about its informal values. As exemplified from this quote from Barbara Toffer, who is a former Arthur Anderson employee. She says, uh, we are supposed to still the guardians of the public trust. But no one ever mentioned that. Everyone did, however, talk about making money all of the time. Mm, mm. And maybe it's just my politics showing as a, a socialist, but it's 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 a, it's very troubling for me to hand the reins of morality, hand the reins of ethics 
to those systems, Angie, that you're talking about that is about that's governed by the process of making money. Or as Joey, you were saying, like outside of nonprofit mm-hmm. structures. And yes, Margaret is a, a case is different mm-hmm. because it's a nonprofit. But that is of all the corporations being incorporated in the United States, like what's the percentage of like 501c3s? Like, you know, and even and even 501c3s that were that are not like religious organizations. Or mm-hmm. like just uh, foundations that uh, billionaires use to uh, <laughs> clean up their money. Yeah. Like a lot of the time, that is what happens. And I don't know. That just I don't. So that is my problem with like things like non-discrimination clauses, right? I don't know how effective they are. And like going back to what Kendi was saying too, it's about both individual, collective, and societal action, like conscious mm-hmm. action. Both, uh, you know, me as a person, us as a collective, and making sure our governments and like systems also make those conscious actions. Like it's that three layer of conscious action that creates change. Can a corporation or can an organization like do that kind of stuff with a with a declaration or like with with a, a policy? Like that is my problem with stuff like that. I don't know. That does not sit well with me. I mean, it really comes down to the people in the organization really taking initiative and calling each other out on it mm. on like mm-hmm. having a more um, having a organizational ethical policy is one thing but actually acting on it is something else and using it and i'm sure that there's a million instances of companies that have policies like that that have where 90% of their employees have never even oh, looked totally. at them right so it's really about the people rather than just the words on the page mm-hmm. and i think that blind spots uh talks about that. In Blind Spots Chapter 4, it talks about um, prediction errors and recollection biases, where mm. you justify the actions that you make, especially in an organizational setting. It brings up Enron and Kenneth Lay, for example, to be ethical, even when they're in reality not, because you misremember or you assume that you would act ethically beforehand, and then afterwards you justify it as, oh, of course I'm being ethical, like it wasn't right. that big a deal, whatever. and. You really need, this is what I mean when I say it's about the people, you need to have the people in your organization who feel like there's no problem and feel free to, as soon as they see someone doing that, call them out on it and be like, no, this is absolutely not ethical. You can't do this. And it also goes deeper than that. I mean, it's about like the relationship lens, sorry, not the relationship, the results lens and the utilitarian consequentialism. And with utilitarianism, like it's about what utility you value, right? Like what's the outcome you value? So in, in, in capitalism, in like capitalist organizations and corporations, the outcome that you value is profit making. Mm-hmm. Like it's about creating the most profit. So when you come from that utilitarian lens of creating the most profit, so if that is your results, then you, you can completely lose track of the human good. And that's where I think sometimes... I mean, I do believe in utilitarianism to an extent, mm-hmm. but it's about what utilities you value. And the utilities, the, the end goals that I value are not the ones that, you know, corporations value. So in that case, we have to shift a little bit from the utility, like results lens and more towards like the a human part of ethics. And uh, Margaret talks about this, about like losing the human element and yes. how uh, sometimes we like the great the most ethical like leaders that she has seen uh shifted from just focusing on results and more focusing on people and i think that mindset is important to cultivate within capitalism because otherwise you can just as joey said like 
uh, fall become join the bandwagon in a way. Like your company the, wants the you to do echo chamber. Yeah, mm-hmm. your company wants you to do something, so you just do it because they want you to, and eventually, like you know, it just gets normalized uh, unless you keep the human in mind. And um, yeah, this is what Margaret says about it. Probably the number one person I looked up to was a woman by the name of Barbara Bull. She was one of my advisors when I was in college. And then I went on to work with her when I became a, a campus advisor. And I appreciated her because she never lost sight of the person. Uh, a lot of the people that she worked for could easily do that. We need to get this done. This is how we're going to have it happen. You need this outcome instead of how do we get people to that outcome? And um, actually, when I spoke at her funeral, I made a comment about how she was the only person I ever worked with who trusted the student in the college environment. She would let us do things that manage money, manage people, manage events that nobody else would have allowed to do that. And I had seven people come up to me afterwards and go, you know, now that you've said that, (laughs) that makes sense. So that's why she probably impacted me more than anybody is give people what they need and help support them and you can get what you need done. I think it's really interesting that um, Barbara was brought up as an example and especially because she, quote, never lost sight of the person. And yeah, when we're when we're talking about um, ethical leadership through especially results-oriented lenses, uh, it is common. I mean, actually, one of the blind spots that Catherine Baird defines within the results lens is basically kind of forgetting why you're doing what you're doing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. reducing, she warns, like, not to reduce every decision to a cost-benefit analysis. Too and little that, good. Yeah, and being satisfied with too little good. Right, yeah. And so it's it's really amazing that you know, as as a growing leader, she was able, uh, Margaret was able to see the... Like, see through that blind spot. Like, see, being able to, like, uh, understand that there is a blind spot here. Well, and see the importance of someone right. acting to address that blind spot. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just implicitly. Like, just, just having that feeling, that intuition. And I think a lot of us do have it, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of us do have those uh, feelings. Um... And sometimes we are just trained to ignore them. <laughs> and sometimes we can rise above that training and we can, uh, we can actually pay attention to these uh, more critical aspects of decision making. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. This, I would argue that this sort of aspect of the results lens very much plays into the scenario you brought up earlier with the doctor, mm-hmm. where a lot of people's gut reaction to that scenario would be, no, of course not. But their gut reaction to the trolley problem might be, oh, of course I would switch it. It's when in reality, it's a very similar problem. And it's just about losing track of the people because when you're actively killing someone to do the good, it (laughs) becomes a lot more obvious that you're doing harm, right? Yeah. Yeah, and one of the the big things that I remember coming up in the utilitarianism readings that we were doing was that... A, a common trap with the results lens is not just forgetting about people, but using others 
as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's something that John Stuart Mills actually cautioned against. Right. Because at that point, you do start to lose your ethical center as, as you start treating other people as something other than mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just become pawns. And at that point, like, you know, you are no better than the, the systems that perpetuate mm-hmm. those unethical, like, uh, status quo. So to go against that, you need to not lose track of your ethical center. Yeah, I absolutely get that. Um, something else that she talks about uh, is um, is grace and like the growth mindset, like surrounding herself with grace and uh, being able to like take criticism and uh, being able to like learn from it, which I again think is like very important in ethics. Um, I have been lucky enough in my work to have surrounded myself with people who have a whole lot of grace because I mess up rather regularly. And so knowing that if I offer them the same grace, that you're allowed to make mistakes because that's how we learn, that's how we grow, that's how we get better, then they're generally willing to allow that as well. Um, The people I don't know that end up being touched by whatever decision I make. It's obviously much harder to get a hold of them, get them to understand and move on. But at that point in time, I just have to trust that they are going to hear what I say and interpret it based on what they need. Yeah. And especially when it comes to, because she was saying this in response to a question about making mistakes and owning up to mistakes when you make them. Mm. Um, And it really is important, especially on an organizational level, not just you know, personal ethics, but organizational to be able to make mistakes and also be able to accept criticism for those mistakes. And so to say that she surrounds herself, Margaret surrounds herself um, with people who have a lot of grace. Because we have a tendency to make ourselves look more or feel that we're more ethical than we actually are. It's an intrinsic bias that we have. Mm Mm-hmm. That is incredibly important because it's it's her way of recognizing that leadership is never going to be a destination. It's a mm. process. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a growth process. And we all have to encourage that growth within ourselves and within each other in mm. order to be effective ethical leaders. And mm-hmm. it's also about believing in ourselves and in others, right? Uh, I am a radical optimist. I've talked about this before, too, on the podcast with, with um, my friends, like with all of you, I think, about how I think we all have an instinct to altruism. And uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, like, yes, we do have a tendency to think of ourselves more eth- uh, as more ethical than we are. But I also think we are more ethical than some of the actions that we do and that we do have an ethical center within us if if only if like you know we decide to like create material action that can counter the unethical around us right i do believe that we have that instinct to altruism and margaret also talks about this and i think and i thought that was really interesting when she says um as a leader i try to recognize that i have a fairly strong belief in other people and that other and that other people can bring some new thing to the discussion something so there is a new sense of like altruism and that like collective sense to altruism uh we can actually hear margaret talk about this um yeah let me pull that up um but at the same time we also recognize 
or as a leader, I try to recognize that I have a fairly strong um, belief in other people and what other people can bring to the discussion. And sometimes people take themselves out of the discussion because of their tone or their attitude or their approach or just not willingness to listen. Um, But nine times out of 10, I'm going to ask a group of people, Um, yeah, it's, it's just like you said, where basically people are internally as ethical as they think they are, I would argue. It's, their actions don't always reflect that, but no one in their head is like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm yeah. going to be evil today, you know? <laughs> I'm going to go do a bad <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, right? Right? Everyone justifies their actions with their morals, but, and it's a matter of, I mean, the title of the book is Blind Spots. It's a matter of seeing through the blind spots that mm-hmm. your, your mind puts up. Yeah, and and some, seeing through to what you're actually doing. Yeah, and sometimes you end up over-rationalizing those mistakes, which is super interesting how our mind just works. And uh, and that's where like listening to other perspective comes perspectives like come in, right? Like you know, you might over-rationalize your mistakes, but uh, you take the the consensus, and there is something in in uh, like dialectic theory about like m- m- taking the mass line. Like mm-hmm. talking to the masses and taking instead of a personal line or a party line or an organization line, you take the mass line, you talk to the people and you get their perspective. So like just listening and getting those perspectives to inform your policy, to inform your action. Like I think that's how you counter those like internal rationalization, Angie, that you're talking about mm-hmm. of how we might be able to rationalize away our mistakes. Yeah, 100%. Listening... Listening is one of the main things that I feel like we've really emphasized repeatedly throughout our leadership education experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Just coming in freshman year and all of us were so (laughs) loud and proud and feeling accomplished. But here we are now and I I would argue that there's a certain kind of humbleness Mm -hmm. that... And maturity. That really does come yeah, with leadership. And yeah. Yeah. I think, and Margaret talks about this too. Actually, yeah, this is, uh, this is very interesting what she says here. Everybody in our organization is coming from a different place. The volunteers, the people, each member of the board, the students that we serve, the parents that we serve, uh, myself, the, my videographer, all of us are coming from a different point and I don't live their life. So I have to be willing to listen and say, okay, this is impacting your life right now. So this is how much I can expect of you. Or Mm -hmm. here's something that you have told me in the past that you want to work on. This is a skill you have told me you want to develop. So I'm going to push you. We're going to go this direction because I listened to what you had to say. Uh, It isn't always easy, especially when they want to say things that I don't want to hear. But I, most days I'm mature enough to hear it. I think that, at the end of the day, really, what we sort of learned from this interview and even just from this, the four years that we've been here in this program has really had a lot to do with just being receptive to the people that you're leading, to the people mm-hmm. that you're helping, mm-hmm. to anyone who's involved, even yeah. slightly, and just hearing what they have to say and listening to it and trying to apply it to whatever you're doing. Because at the end of the day, you shouldn't really be giving people help that they don't want. Right. Or need. <laughs> 
I mean, that is the whole thing with like savior complexes. And, you know, like we have uh, historic precedents for people coming in and saying, hey, you have a problem, I'm going to fix it. And it never goes well. Mm-hmm. No. So- <laughs> it's not a real problem. Yeah. On, on, in the day-to-day lives of these people, right? There are problems. And at the end of the day, unless you're in that group, you won't really be able to know without listening and finding out. Well, it's, I would say that, I mean, bringing it once again black, back to blind spots, um, it, it comes down to our bounded awareness, especially if you're an individual coming at a situation from a stance of privilege, you know. Um, like being able to understand your privilege and acknowledge it? Well, not just that, but be able to admit that you don't know things yeah. and that yeah. you and that you'll never know everything and that it's not realistic to expect anyone to know everything and therefore we necessarily have to approach leadership as with empathy with yes empathy. yeah with empathy because it's uh like i think something we might forget is you know as leaders and like people taking proactive action we kind of think of ourselves as the main character <laughs> <laughs> But we aren't, and people and our people aren't. Like when you go into a community trying to solve a problem, it is not just your story. It is our story. It's the story of that community. It is a story. It is just as much your story as it is their story, but it's also just as much their story mm-hmm. as it is yours. So finding that commonality, finding that story, I think is where the real praxis of leadership lies. And that's where stories become important. That's why stories are important. You know, that's why storytelling is important, because from those stories, we are able to create the foundation for a new tomorrow. And uh, we will be back to you with more stories next week with another episode of the Katha podcast where we tell stories from the past, the present, the future. And yes, the episode that I promised you about South Asian mental health that is coming, that is coming. And we're working on this exciting collab with the wonderful organization. So stay tuned for that. Until then, until next time, this is your host, Hridit Sudev, signing off, and you have been listening to the Katha Podcast.